I'm Chris Nessie, host of Behind the Mic, Voices of the EPN, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, I recently was interviewed by Chris Nessie, the founder of EPN. EPN is the Education Podcast Network. He has a podcast called The House of Ed Tech on there, and he also has his podcast called Behind the Mic. Behind the Mic is where he interviews the other podcasters on EPN. That's right. He uh, talks to us about, uh, you know, why we made the podcast, why we stuck with it, what happened along the way, what equipment we use, what we learned that uh, from mistakes and what we learned from just by doing. And uh, it's pretty cool. And you get to hear from all of us. So uh, good stuff. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, I hope you go sh- listen to it as well as share it with a friend. That'd be so cool. Thanks. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Sydney Lee, a Pulitzer finalist in poetry, founding editor of the New England Review, Vermont's Poet Laureate from 2011 to 2015, recipient of his state's Governor's Award for Excellence in the Arts in 2021, and a Field and Stream Magazine conservation hero. Today we're talking about poetry, his career, and his latest collection of poetry called What Shines. Oh, so much to learn. You're going to love this talk. Thanks for listening. And by the way, before you go, it'd be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and uh, left review. Could you do that for me? Thanks so much. You are awesome. Enjoy the show. But I knew I was no Willa Cather or, or Mark Twain that I, if I tried to do it in dialect, it would sound condescending. And I didn't feel a bit condescending. I admired these people incredibly because they, boy, they, <laughs> if we ever think we work hard, we really haven't. Uh, at any rate, uh, and I came up with this uh, theory, which may be cockamamie, but it got me going. And that was that if I tried to uh, write stories like such as the ones I'd heard around campfires and in kitchens and in lumber yards and so on, if I tried to do that in poetry, that I might be able to capture some of the cadences of their language without having to imitate it. It's the Education Podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests, and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dr. Steve Milletto. A former Pulitzer finalist in poetry, Sidney Lee, served as founding editor of New England Review and was Vermont's Post Laureate from 2011 to 2015. In 2021, he was presented with his home state's Governor's Award for Excellence in the Arts. He has published 24 books, a novel, five volumes of personal and three of critical essays, and 16 poetry collections. Most recently, What Shines, uh, published by Four Way Books. His sixth book of personal essays, Such Dancing As We Can, is due in early 2024, and his second novel, Now Look, in spring. Our focus today is on poetry, writing, and his work, What Shines. Sid, thanks so much for being on the show. Say hi to everyone. Hello, everybody, and uh, thank you very much, Steve, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, glad to have you here. And I, you know, recently you, you turned 80 years old, and you're releasing your 23rd book called What Shines. And, and you got a whole bunch coming, so this is cool stuff. Uh, you know, when did you start writing, and why Why did you start writing? <laughs> I'm, I'm closer now to 81 than 80. Uh, pinch me. I, well, I, I don't know whether you want the Reader's Digest answer or the or the other answer, which takes a little bit longer. I'm good uh, for the, t- take, take with the time you need, so. Okay, well, uh, no one would have met or looked at me when I was a typical American hormone-driven, witless, uh, beer-swigging 18-year-old and said, well, that guy's bound to be a poet. I I wanted to be a professional hockey player. That was my real passion. I did reasonably well in school without much effort, uh, except in any course that involved numbers in which I was immediately (laughs) thrown out. (laughs) But At any rate, I've had a relationship with a, a very remote corner of Maine, Washington County, Maine, inland Maine, uh, lake country and vast woods since I was a child. And uh, I uh, was blessed, and I use that word advisedly, um, to know men and women who, if they were alive now, would be 140, 150. And they had uh, 
lived up there at a time preceding power tools and uh, uh, for the households, uh, you know, modern appliances. Uh, there weren't even any radios because there was no electricity. So these old folks, uh, <clears throat> not so old then, uh, <laughs> had to make their own entertainment, and they were just uh, fantastic uh, storytellers. Now I'll let that hover in the background for a minute. I, uh, when I uh, was an undergraduate, uh, there were no writing courses per se, um, and I did some fiction writing on my own. Just wrote these whimsical little stories. Uh, and both my roommates were hard scientists. They weren't particularly interested. They were good people, but they had other fish to fry. And then uh, I uh, I got to my senior year, and, and I realized I was going to have to do something to make a living. Uh, it never occurred to me to be a writer. That was something that other people did, uh, not me. Um, and there was some secret to it, and nobody had told me that. There were very few MFA programs in those days. Nowadays, you walk around the corner and there's one, but... Uh, the famous one in Iowa, the one at Stanford, and so on. I, it never even entered my mind, <clears throat> excuse me, to uh, to apply to either of those. I didn't have a portfolio to begin with. I had, uh, so I uh, I went on and took uh, a year. I didn't have a certification for public school, but I took a job at a private uh, day school, teaching at the high school uh, level, teaching English and French, and. Uh, at the end of which time I concluded that there was not enough money in the world to make me work that hard and to be on call every minute of the day when I was in the school. So I took a cushy way out uh, eventually and became a university professor. But uh, I, <laughs> I I went uh, Yale program, doctoral program in comparative literature because I had uh, languages that I wanted to use. And, uh, and then I got a job at Dartmouth, but I got it without my... PhD uh, degree. I hadn't finished the dissertation yet. And uh, I was really struggling with it because it was, uh, I was at Yale at, at, at the dawn of the, uh, of the critical theory uh, era, which is all around us now. And uh, I, I remember reading something by Flannery O'Connor, which rang a bell with me. She said, I'm a person constitutionally innocent of theory, but with certain preoccupations. And uh, anyway, I, I I had gotten uh, seduced into doing this uh, theoretical uh, exploration of uh, 19th century supernatural literature, and I produced a document which is inscrutable to everyone, including its author. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was having real trouble getting it done because I was a novice teacher and so on, I uh, when I was up for my second uh, appointment as an assistant professor, the, the chair of the department came in. And he was a nice fellow, and we remained friends till his death. And he said, to, uh, "He said, you know, you really got to finish that dissertation because we just kind of the rule here: if you don't have it after a certain period of time, you got to go." Well. I said, I know I'm struggling very hard uh, to 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 get it done. I'm just having, I'm spinning my wheels, and it's keeping me up at night, and so on. He said, Well, I I got something I think that might help you, because I was all ears at that point. And he said, uh, The students are clamoring for. Uh, this was at another Ivy League school at, at Dartmouth, uh, where there are no writing courses. The students are clamoring for a creative writing course, and we're going to let them have one. Um, and we'll, I'll, I'll let you teach it. And I said, well, why the hell would I teach it? <laughs> well, you know, it's not a real course. Uh, you know, you don't have to do any preparation. <laughs> you go in and read the stuff and pat them on the back and this will give you more time. It'll one less preparation. You can finish your dissertation. Well, at any rate, I began to teach that course using that verb very loosely, I think. And, uh, I found myself, uh, motivated to start writing again myself um i kind of fell in love with the all the students and their struggles to get this stuff down on paper which never goes away uh, and i started to uh i started to write i wanted to get the voices of those old folks i mentioned at the outset onto the page but i knew i was no willa cather or or mark twain that I, if i tried to do it in dialect it would sound condescending and i didn't feel a bit condescending i admired these people incredibly because they boy they <laughs> if we ever think we work hard we really haven't uh at any rate uh 
And I came up with this uh, theory, which may be cockamamie, but it got me going. And that was that if I tried to uh, write stories like such as the ones I'd heard around campfires and in kitchens and in lumber yards and so on, if I tried to do that in poetry, that I might be able to capture some of the cadences of their language without having to imitate it. So uh, that's what I did. My early work was really very particularly narrative. Uh, I told stories uh, often, and uh, but they were in they were in poetry. And uh, there came there came a time when uh, I was going to be up for tenure, and the, my friend, uh, the chairman, had been replaced by my enemy, the chairman. We never said anything publicly to one another or even personally, but uh, it was quite clear that we didn't really have much room for either uh, for the other. Uh, e- either one of us had any room for the other in his world. And uh, he uh, he said, you know, we got this thing, publisher parish. Well, I had gotten lucky early. I mean, I'd published in the New Yorker and the Atlantic, and I had a, and a lot of other top-tier literary journals, and I have... Uh, I had a book under contract, my first collection of poetry. I mentioned that to him, and he said, well, you know, it was just as if it was the same. It was, teaching creative writing was not real teaching, so <laughs> publishing poetry was not real, gotcha. real public. So I decided I would go, uh, and in those days, you didn't have to write a whole book that nobody would read, just a couple of essays that no one would read. And I said, well, I'll try and mine the old dissertation, take a couple of chapters, see if I can place them somewhere. And I when I like to work in the, for whatever reason, I, I like to work in the reference room in the in the Baker Library at Dartmouth, partly because there is rarely anybody there. They just come in and out, you know, the, the, to check a, the, in those days, the Oxford English Dictionary or wherever it may have been. <clears throat> right. This space was presided over by a very stern woman, whose name I did not invent, and neither did Charles Dickens. Her name was Miss Wormwood. Nice. And uh, she was a real strict disciplinarian. <laughs> so I was sitting at my desk, and I opened up that old dissertation, and I got vertigo and nausea and whatever else. It's kind of like a literary PTSD. And I said aloud, spontaneously, not meaning to be disruptive, but he, it was only she and I in the place anyway. I said, I don't want to do this when I grow up. So I closed that document and I've never looked at it since. I said, well, poetry is what I want to do. Writing is what I want to do. I'm just going to keep on doing it and see uh, where the ships fall uh, thereafter. And uh, I did not get tenure, but I was almost immediately hired at Middlebury College in Vermont, uh, which meant that I, excuse me, which meant I didn't have to uproot my kids and so on. Uh, it was a little longer commute, but not that much longer. And uh, uh, they had a tradition of writer uh, professors, excuse me again, and uh, I fit right in uh, there, and I and I taught there quite a long time. And my, the last ten years of my uh, teaching career, I went back to Dartmouth in a, in a graduate program called Master of Arts and Liberal Studies, and I was uh, the head of the writing track through that uh, uh, degree. And then I retired in uh, 2011. Um, but uh, that's that's how I got started with my writing. I was a real late bloomer. My first book didn't come out until I was just shy of 40. Uh, and I have... For, even in my dotage, I don't seem to be looking back. I, <laughs> I I might do other things in my retirement, except I can't. And I do do other things in my retirement, but I can't think of anything that really substitutes uh, for writing in terms of responding to some inner urge that I have. That's awesome. That's and, and, by the way, I, so, I just I'm sorry. But I think, oh, no, no, this is cool. This is because uh, I knew there was that you hadn't started till later, and I was like. Uh, I was curious how all that, because it's, it's not like you just out there piddling around because you created, uh, I mean, you've been, you got some wonderful recognition and so forth from other people, especially um, going back to knowing that you, you started a class at a place where they didn't consider, consider it a real class. <laughs> nice. Uh, but Yeah, I feel I've been blessed. I think it's all serendipity. Uh, I could tell another little story about my finishing up at Dartmouth. That please, same, please. 
that same uh, uh, department chair, knave and fool in my view, uh, had his chance in my so-called grace year between uh, you know, the time that I was dismissed and the time that uh, I would have to stop showing up, that, that you know, and I could look for employment meanwhile. And he sent me uh, my my uh, teaching schedule for the next year, and it was virtually all blue book, uh, remedial, low-level, time-consuming, uninteresting work. And I, it felt... Uh, uh, he's now he's had his chance and now he's got me but so I'm not going to take this lying down so I, I drove in to see him it was in the summertime and uh, and uh, I, I all the way down I gave myself a lecture now be moderate to, you know uh, try and be polite and so on and so forth after 10 minutes <laughs> I said I'm not teaching any of those courses and he said well you are he said that's what I've assigned you and that's what you're going to teach I said no I'm not going to because uh, I'm not coming in this building again and I'm not. A, I'm not proud of that. I said. Furthermore, if you're in the down downtown in Hanover, you want to be looking over your shoulder, buddy, because I might just be there. He was white as a ghost because he was very small and I'm rather large. Anyway, I, I, that's an amusing story. I, I, I immediately afterwards I regretted it, uh, both morally and practically. I was saying all the way home, "My gosh, what are you going to do now? You know, you don't have a job, <laughs> right, right, right? And it's too late to apply for one." Uh, what are you going to do? And uh, I, I was mulling over that and pulled into the driveway. It was an unusually hot day, and my wife and uh, two kids, the first two kids were down by the town pond beach, and uh, the phone was ringing. And I ran upstairs, and it was the chair of the department at Middlebury. I mean, it was that seamless. And wow. he said that <clears throat> this young novelist, a man I knew and liked very much named Tom Gavin, uh, had contracted a serious and terminal, likely terminal disease, at any rate, terminal or otherwise. He was not going to be able to teach that year. And would I step into his shoes? And I said, well, of course. <laughs> and and that was, uh, unfortunately, poor Tom died, uh, as predicted. And uh, and I stayed on uh, uh, at Middlebury, as I, as I say. And... Uh, really uh really enjoy i mean i was allowed to uh, really concentrate on 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 uh creative writing classes i did teach standard classes as well but uh, that was my main focus and middlebury soon bought the magazine that i had founded called new england review oh nice and uh so i i was technically <clears throat> excuse me as the editor of that magazine i was technically an administrator i i answered to the provost. I didn't answer to anybody in the English department, which was a blessing because, you know, the minute I arrived, all of a sudden, all kinds of material started coming in from colleagues within the department. And uh, very little did it, of it did I accept. Uh, and with one or two exceptions, most people were, you know, I would say, you know, I don't want this to appear to be a housework and it's a national right. publication. I want it to remain that way. And uh, there wasn't anything really they could do about it because the, the courses I taught within the English department were kind of free to, freebies for them. They weren't paying my salary. Ah, okay. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I could stop and I'd still be a Middlebury employee. Uh, at any rate, uh, that the, the, I'm still astonished by the what I call the seamlessness of that transition from a blow-up with this English department <laughs> chair to... Uh, uh, an invitation to a job that uh, I liked. I liked very much. That's awesome. The, uh, it, it's just nice that it, it worked out that way. It, it, you know, because I can, I can only imagine you know, as you're describing talking to yourself, going um, <laughs> to the meeting and then leaving the meeting. You go well, you know. <laughs> now what? And, that was a it was a half hour drive, and uh, it was uh, fraught. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. The, yeah. So what? It, I mean. It, and knowing all this, I mean, what do you think about what you've accomplished? I mean, you've 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 been able to produce and got more coming out, and uh, I mean, you've received incredible recognition, which we're going to get into a couple of them in just a minute. And, I mean, what I mean, what's that make you think about? Because because of well, how you started, it, it, makes me, it makes me feel to use uh, again the appropriate word. I'm sort of a bit of a cough, <clears throat> uh, cold. I have to. Uh, 
clear my throat periodically. It, 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 again, it makes me feel very, like I'm a very blessed person because I spent 43 years or the better part of 43 years getting paid for something I like to do. Um, and, uh, I've never, it was, it was, uh, very, very informative and instructive, uh, to have been an editor for those 13 years because I, I learned a number of things. One is that I, one must never take rejection personally. Even back in the pre-computer days, we were getting 350 poems a week, 50 wow. stories, 10 essays, something like that. Came out four times a year in a format of 128 pages, some of which was taken up with contributors' notes and front matter and so on. So that was instructive. You know, uh, you know, a lot of people who haven't had that opportunity will get turned down by X, Y, or Z magazine. And they said, well, that's that's because they only publish their friends or they throw the manuscripts down the stairs and the ones that land in the middle, they, you know, all that kind of right, thing. Right, right. Um, but it also, you know, we published some people who became real uh, heavyweights in, in time. And, uh, and, and yet... You know, their reader, their their audience, if they want to give her uh, a reading, uh, wherever, uh, would amount to perhaps the front row of a Florida baseball stadium and the exhibition game in the preseason. Uh, so I kind of, I kind of, kind of keep that stuff in perspective. I've gotcha. always been more ambitious to make myself sound better than I <laughs> but I've tried to tell myself to be more ambitious for the work than for its promotion. And, uh, so I've, I've really not given a whole lot of thought, uh, to, uh, you know, how many people I'm reaching, whether I'm important, whether I'll ever be remembered. The likelihood is no, most people aren't. Uh, I mean, when I think of, I had a, uh, after after I started to write, I had uh, by coincidence through the magazine, I uh, I developed a mentor in the great Robert Penn Warren, and uh, and uh, at the time of his death in the eighties, uh, he had won three Pulitzer prizes. He was a rich man from all the king's men. He was on the tip of everybody's tongue, and nobody talks about it. Nobody. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I recently, in writing an essay, I decided to look up some of the Pulitzer Prize winners and uh, the woman whose name I've already forgotten, though she's quite good, in 1939, I think she might have been the first woman recipient of the Pulitzer, uh, was a person nobody's ever, ever heard of. I mean, literally never wow. heard of. So this, you know, time is the anthologist, not me. Uh, you know, whether I'm included or not, it's not something I can dwell on because I have no power over it. Uh, but, uh, but it's, as I say, it's uh, at some level, writing poetry, it's a very selfish act in a sense because it, uh, it, 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 <laughs> It enables an otherwise rather fuzzy-minded man, more so the older I get, uh, to kind of make sense of his experience. Uh, and uh, as I say, I haven't found a substitute for it except uh, in prose. But even those efforts are not quite the same uh, in terms of uh, self-fulfillment. Um, uh, well, I could go on, but no need. That's that's awesome. I you know it's it. And it's, it's not, I, I, I have my share of times reading. I never met him, but uh, reading and uh, being tested over Robert Penn Warren. <laughs> um, so uh, all the King's men was definitely a, uh, um, a requirement in my, uh, in my yeah. studies a couple of different times. So, but. Uh, well, he was the one um, we did an interview with him and his very, uh, capable and distinguished uh, wife, Eleanor Clark, uh, who won the National Book Award for a book called The Oysters of Lac Maria Care, a nonfiction book about the Breton village uh, uh, in France. Uh, and we interviewed them for uh, the magazine at one point. And uh, th that's really how I came to know him originally. And uh, I remember asking him during that interview, I said, uh, uh, what what is your thought about where you will uh, 
where you will be regarded, uh, uh, you know, uh, after you've left the earth and so on and so forth. He said, I never think about that. He said, uh, you know, if I start thinking about that, I'm going to start writing badly. Because I just know I'm going to start writing badly because I'll be writing for other people and not for myself. The project will be for public consumption rather than for my personal fulfillment. And uh, he was the one that came up <laughs> with that uh, uh, phrase that I've just uh, stolen which was the time is the great anthologist <laughs> nice. and uh so uh, i i don't give a, a great deal of thought when i got uh when i was one of three finalists for the pulitzer that year uh a pulitzer that was awarded to my friend stephen dunn it was a the late stephen dunn it was a terrific poet uh uh you know people afterwards would say we want a three finalists you know next time next time and i said you know the uh After after the fact, I learned who the judges were, and they were all people who had been sympathetic to to my work. Anthony Heck, the poet, I I actually eventually did a uh, edited an anthology of essays on Anthony Heck's work. Um, uh, A wonderful critic poet uh, at Kansas State University called John Holden, who was actually a friend of mine. And then Mary Carr, uh, who uh, you know, the author of the Liars Club, and, uh, and so on. Nice. Uh, had to be she who who got me. I don't know, but <laughs> I've never held it against her because I think she's such a marvelous writer. So those people were all, with the exception perhaps of Miss Carr, were inclined in my direction. Uh, and the next group of judges, for all I know, you know, the kind of thing I do would be completely uninteresting to them. So it's just the luck of the draw in so many ways. And uh, I've had my share of luck, so I can't. <laughs> Bitch about a little bit of what you could call bad luck is good enough to have been a finalist. I think that's uh, that uh, it's a, oh, a buoy to me at a time when I I kind of needed it. Gotcha. That's that's huge. I mean, it, and you're and the recognitions that you've had, and I understand what you're saying is very humble. What your you know your comments, but I mean, uh, it's just so um, so incredible. What uh, you know, it, especially in how it. Uh, Kind of the uniqueness in, in starting <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> played as well. So, you know, great stuff. I mean, what? I mean, one of the things that I mean now, from what I understand, you you got all these degrees from Yale. Is it? Um, did that yeah. have any impact on your writing, or is that just something that uh, you did? <laughs> it's and, funny, and you, you know, I uh, have a complex relationship toward that university. My mother a very bright woman uh, who had lost her father during the, the Spanish flu epidemic. She was only five at the time, uh, was an excellent student. And she was, uh, her father's surrogate was her bachelor uncle, probably a gay man, uh, thinking back, uh, explosively angry at times. And I think that had to do probably with the frustrations of his situation. Uh, uh, she and she revered him, and uh, she went and said, "You know, I I've been admitted to Radcliffe College, which was you know top of top of the line in those days." And he, he looked at her and said, "Women don't go to college." Oh, wow. You knew the old man. There was just no appeal. If he made a judgment, that was it. You didn't get a chance to argue. So I feel that she, I, you know, I, as the oldest of her five, I became kind of her vicar, and. Uh, I've internalized this. Maybe that's why I've written so much. You know, I, it echoes in my mind. Uh, a long time. It took me a long time to be a good vacationer because I was always repeating her, her uh, admonishment to me, which apply yourself, just apply yourself. Nice. Uh, and uh, no matter how well I did in school, uh, it was never quite good enough. And she determined early on that I was not to go to any old university, I was going to go to what back in those days was called the big three, Yale, Harvard, or Princeton. And so, and I, you know, I, I really, I visited Cornell and I liked that. And she, she immediately just made up a lot of lies about it. Why? So <laughs> and so I had this, uh, you know, I hadn't really seen, I'd never been to Princeton. I never went to Harvard. Uh, I went to Yale because I had a cousin uh, there briefly. Didn't last. Uh, one time I didn't do the admissions tour or anything like that. And uh, I said, well, Harvard must be for bookworms and Princeton's for playboys. And so Yale must be somewhere in between. So <laughs> that's where I'll apply. 
Well, um, I took my undergraduate degree there, but uh, I never had a sense that uh, I was uh, getting what you might call a rounded education. I did pretty well, you know, but I just would pick this course and that course. And they were mostly literary, to be sure, but, uh, you know, history, uh, um, sociology, whatever it might be. And so after that year of, um, of teaching at the secondary level, when I decided to apply for grad school, I thought, well, you know, you missed all the all the opportunities that that university offers when you're an undergrad. Uh, a lot of it had to do with overconsumption of alcohol. I quit the hockey team eventually to nurture that habit, on which more perhaps later. Uh, so why don't you go back there and take advantage of it um, this time around? And I loved graduate school. I really did. You know, when I got there, you know, the, the, my capacity to apply myself seemed, uh, seemed to come pretty naturally. It never quite pleased my mother. I wasn't the valedictorian of my class or anything like that, but she was reasonably proud that I, and she was the only person who ever called me doctor. You know, uh, I, I don't, uh, usually people who ask, insist on being called doctor or, I don't know, have their doctorates in in education and maybe physical education or written a dissertation on football helmets or whatever it may be. And that's a little bit too general because <laughs> I have lots of friends who uh, fit the category of doctors of education. But uh, uh, at any rate, she, she whenever she'd introduce, it was my son, Dr. Sidney Lee. Nice. Uh, and uh, so that's how I ended up back at Yale. And I was there at a really interesting time because, as I say, the young Turks and now old men, many of them dead, had recently arrived. They were, they were young. They were theoretically inclined. They were primarily Jewish people in this uh, institution, which, though secular, had kind of the the uh, ancient uh, ghost of white Christian gentlemen about it. Uh, so they're disrupt disruptive in their very persons and in their approach to literature. Now, the people, the old new critics who were their seniors uh, were brilliant men, many of them, and they were men, with one exception. I think that's the only, in any literary department, there was one woman back in those days. Uh, so the, 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 they didn't see eye to eye on much. So it was a lot of ferment. You know, it was a heady time to be there because, uh, you know, these uh, changes uh, were arriving uh, and... Uh, and I made much better friends really in graduate school than I did when I was in college. Uh, unfortunately, at my age, many of them are falling by the wayside or worse, uh, you know, losing their capacity to communicate. Um, just met one the other day. It was so sad that I've known for 50 years and he knew who I was, but he didn't know much else. And, uh, so uh, I, that's just, that's the nature of uh, of human existence. But uh, while they lasted, and while I was there, I had a I had a, a wonderful circle of friends, and we were uh, we no, weren't always on the same page intellectually. So we had some arguments and discussions, which could get heated, but never never rancorous. Uh, so I really I really liked it a lot. That's awesome. I I have to say this because the first time I ever I, I like a lot of old comedy. All right comedy from the past and one of my one of my favorites that I grew up with was Bob Hope and especially his early movies and he always had this little comment where he would play characters that were you know supposedly graduated from Harvard and at some point he'd have some <laughs> derisive comment about Yale and uh, I always wondered if there was something to that because like he'd pick up a he'd go to unlock something and it would be a Yale lock oh it's a Yale lock you know <laughs> Uh, no, I, um, you know, I, 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 at undergrads, uh, you know, the people I don't really keep in touch with anymore, although they're fine, many of them, but, uh, you know, for them, the undergraduate years at Yale were peak experience and they hate Harvard. I mean, I never for one minute thought I'd hate somebody because he went to Harvard or <laughs> Princeton or University of Michigan or, or Tulane or whatever it might be. So, uh. I I don't have any of that animus toward the the theoretically competitive elite uh, institution, 
I love old comedy too, although I incline toward the toward the Marx print. Oh, Marx nice, print. nice. Uh, one of my my favorite. I read a, a biography of Groucho, and, and the following incident was referred to, which I just thought was perfectly Marxian in the Groucho sense. <laughs> that he one of his wives was a, was a great social climber, apparently, but she also was an occultist. She liked to go to seances and so on. And her dream came true when she got an invitation from a woman up in Shishi part of Westchester County, New York, uh, who was going to have a, 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 a medium there who built herself as Nairobi. And uh, <laughs> so Nairobi, uh, she had this, uh, uh, you know, flack out front saying, well, Nairobi is this and that. she's, right. she's, reaching uh the seventh level of contemplation or whatever it may be and they well now she's here does anybody have any questions for an aerobian and Groucho yelled what's the capital of south dakota <laughs> <laughs> and i i've always taken that to heart because if there's one thing that that troubles me it's people that take themselves too seriously <laughs> nice. and, so I, I'm often thinking about that, but you know, poet friends who think that what they're doing is so important that uh, you know relationships with their family or friends or community or society uh, are totally secondary. You know, I want to yell, "What's the capital of South Dakota?" <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's a that's a that is and what a really good Groucho thing for. <laughs> it's, it's the ultimate, as far as I know. Yes, that is awesome. I, um, you know. One of the things I got to make sure that we do here, because I'm enjoying talking to you, and and at some point you got to tell me about the hockey stuff. So, uh, but uh, well, let's talk about what shines. I mean, that's your that's your latest uh, collection of, uh, of poetry. Um, you know what? Uh, talk a little bit about what style. I mean, what makes up what Sid writes. I mean, what? I mean, talk about that, and let's talk a little bit about what uh, what shines is all about. Um, well. You know, I, I never sit down to write a book uh, about something, not a book of poetry at any rate. Um, I just accumulate a certain number of poems and I say, well, uh, there's a certain curve of energy that seems to have expended itself. And I look back at my material and then I, then the challenge is how do I arrange this in such a way that, it, that it's what the French call a well-made book. It has a kind of a beginning, middle and end and so forth. And in this case, I found myself, uh, although uh, I've uh, I've always had uh, an oddly, I think it's because I remembered those old folks I described a while ago, an oddly retrospective uh, cast to my poetry. But at you know, in my late seventies uh, and then eighty, uh, uh, you know, you you know, the knock on the door is coming sooner than it was at one point, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, so I, I looked at what I had written and I saw that one of the things that fascinated me was the degree to which I was revisiting circumstances from earlier in life, sometimes very young in life, and comparing my perspective on them then to my perspective on them looking back upon them and, and having lived, you know, subsequent seven decades. And, uh, I like, uh, I, I, you know, the other day I was reading a group of poems at a public reading and I realized most of them were kind of gloomy. <laughs> and I said, you know, I got to tell you, I'm lots of fun in real life. <laughs> uh, but I like, uh, I, I don't like to, you know, there's a certain amount of pain and disappointment, fear, given what's going on with the planet and with politics and so on in the book. But I like to, to end on a cautiously optimistic note I, I i like to see what shines you know and that you know i was uh speaking of uh trouble with alcohol my mother unfortunately had a battle with alcohol and prescription drugs to the day she died uh, she lived a long time i don't know how she did really uh and uh at any rate uh, uh that made her complex as a mother you know i mean i think she always meant the best but she that that uh, that kind of addiction uh, changes your character, uh, especially if you're uh, uh, under the immediate siege. Uh, and I know that because I inherited that. Now I was blessed again to use that word uh, 
a long, long time ago to get into recovery from that. But uh, one of the things I look at in that title poem, What Shines, is, uh, you know, there were there were difficulties in, in dealing with my mom, and she had them with me as well. And I said, it, it wasn't all bad, though. I don't want to give the impression it was all bad. She's a big strapping woman, and she, she didn't mind corporal punishment <laughs> right until I was about 14. I could finally handle her. She was incredibly strong. Uh, but uh, what shines from all that experience? And that poem is uh, it's ambivalent. You know, there are things I remember that were not pleasant and things I remembered that were or I think they were, you know, that's the, that's part of it. You know, that's right. how did you feel at that time? You know, what was your response? Uh, that, and that's what that title is all about. But I think there's a lot of that throughout the book. I don't mean specifically directed at my mother, but, uh, but uh, you know, uh, you went through this experience when you were nine, 15, 25, 40, uh, and you had an attitude toward it then, uh, and what's your attitude about it now? How would it be different if you were transported back in time with the kind of psychological and emotional development, as I hope it's been, uh, that you have now? Um, so that informs a lot of the uh, choices that went into into making that book. Nice. Do you, when you go to to write, I mean, do you do you do that? Do you like have a place where you write or where your muse hits you more? Or is it that something suddenly you go, Hey, Hey, I got an idea. And you sit and you do it. Um, I, I almost never begin with an idea. Uh, I, I begin with something that or a couple of things that have caught my attention and, uh, and then I just start writing about them. And uh, I, this sounds a little billowy, but I trust the language to take me toward an understanding of what those things have to do with one another. Um, I don't worry too much about meaning in the classic sense that we used to get in grad school. What does this symbolize? Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> uh, the, there's a story about the W.H. Auden who was approached by a young English student uh, when he was a Don uh, and said, uh, you know, uh, Professor Auden, I have a wonderful idea for a poem. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> Uh, because I know if I, and I, that was the thing I, I learned early on, if I was just using poetry as a mode of expecting, uh, expressing convictions or feelings I already knew I had, then it wasn't going to be very interesting to me and it wouldn't be very interesting to a reader. I, the thing that I love about poetry is that I discover what I didn't know was on my mind in the pro very process uh, of writing. And as far as physical context, you know, is there a good place to write or not? Uh, when we got this, uh, we, we've lived in on this particular uh, spot of land for 36 years now. And when we first moved in, mine, we had small children too. Uh, the only thing that was uh, uh, the only habitable building, in fact, the only building beside a shed on the property was uh an old hunter's camp. It had been winterized by the prior owner, but it was small. And uh, it was, uh, we, we were in it for about eight months with three little kids uh, and my wife. And if we got into a tiff, there was no place to go. You couldn't just, just stop off. You'd have to walk outside and freeze. <laughs> uh, but uh, once uh, we built the house I'm speaking to you from now, what had become what had been a, an extremely cramped living condition became a commodious office and i've done most of my writing there although i do a lot of writing i also uh uh new englanders uh, uh use the word camp uh to mean a place usually in a remote part of the world which is uh lacking in modern conveniences and uh is uh out in the corner and uh i bought one of those places in 1967 for 500 dollars uh and it's right on this gorgeous natural waterfall you can wow. the water out of the river and so on uh and i did a lot of writing up there particularly that first novel i did a lot of writing uh in, in that place um although with little kids I, sometimes i had to uh, i had a little uh, uh I bought from Sears, which was then operative, I believe, a kind of a 
a ready-made gazebo uh, so I could sit outside by the river uh, and write. Uh, now, it doesn't seem to matter too much um, where I am. I, I had always said, I don't want to, <clears throat> you know, people say, well, you really ought to go to Yaddo or McDowell Colony or something like that, you know, you have free time to write. Well, there are a couple of reasons I didn't want to do that. A, would leave my wife holding the bag uh, uh, completely with small children. And the other one was I feared that if I got away from my writing roots, I wouldn't write at all. Uh, yeah. But eventually I did get a fellowship to a, a, a Rockefeller-funded outfit on the shores of Lake Como in Italy uh, 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 called the Villa Cerbelloni. Uh, and, uh, and I was there for a month. And uh, I was very, very productive. And then I've taught and I, I, I spent a year in Hungary and Budapest and I wrote a lot and I spent a semester in Switzerland and I wrote a lot and I spent nice. summers uh, teaching in Italy and I wrote a lot. So I, I seem to have gotten over the superstition that I can only write under certain circumstances. Love, love that. The, uh, you know what, uh, one of the things that uh, people often uh, make a comment about is that uh, they got these ideas, but when they sit down to write, they just look at a blank page. <laughs> you have any thoughts about that to, to, to some of the listeners? Well, you know, I always used to tell my students, I said, you know, the point is to keep writing. You might be writing badly, but make sure you're writing. Just just keep doing it. Because uh, anything you do for a protracted length of time with regularity, you're going to get better at. And it might, you know, it might not be the best. I always, I used to call my examples from the world of athletics. I say, you know, there are probably lots of other men of his generation who are as physically talented as Michael Jordan, but he was the one that went down to the, to the playground and shot the basket and dribbled the basketball until he couldn't see anymore. You know, he did that every day. And that's, that's how he, he, you know, a lot of, especially a lot of fellow academics would have this notion that somehow you're, a young man or woman, and you walk outside one day, you're struck by lightning, and all of a sudden you're Emily Dickinson. Well, my, <laughs> maybe that happened to somebody. It didn't happen to me. I can <laughs> tell you, I had to, I had to pay my dues, and uh, whatever it was that motivated me to do so. I mean, I wrote an awful lot before I got any good at it. it seems to me, um, and so uh, I, I, you know, uh, the, the the point is to keep going. I've I've never encountered exactly what you would call writer's block. I do find myself going into periods of inertia uh, immediately after the publication of a book. You know, I'm, well, I've done that now. Uh, why did I bother? Nobody's paying attention, yada, yada, yada. But uh, I've even gotten over that because uh, simply by deciding, by not writing poetry, but writing things in prose, uh, uh, that fills the, fills the gap and is very fulfilling as well. That's that's awesome. I appreciate you talking about that. I, uh, you know, one of the things I gotta gotta ask you is, uh, what do you think about uh, poetry as a medium today? I mean, is it is it strong and vibrant? Is it does it have a, you know, are, are the people making it part of their their world or you know, I mean, where is it today as a as a medium? I, I gather that uh, especially during COVID, it had a a spike just as COVID had a spike. So did the interest in poetry, which one could speculate at, about at great length. I won't bother. But, uh, you know, as I said earlier on, I never got the impression, you know, I, I didn't stick with poetry because of uh, money, women, and fame. That was not the motivation. Uh, but, uh, you know, poetry uh, has always been a minority art. It really has. Even... Uh, in the case of Robert Frost, who was the last to make poetry pay, <laughs> and without you know almost all the poets I know now are affiliated with uh, an academic institution of one kind or another. Uh, you know, even in those cases, you know, people were uh, uh, more of them were turn, tuning into Hollywood squares and were reading his uh, poems. So that just kind kind of comes with the territory but i think for a certain block of people uh there's an attraction to poetry uh th that is not replicable by other by other means um 
my own feeling, uh, because, you know, of course, everybody is entitled uh, at a certain age to become a grumpy oldster. <laughs> um, a lot of contemporary poetry that I look at, published in prominent places, I look at it, I think, can people really be moved by this? I mean, how? I don't understand one word of what's going on here. And life is short, and I'm not going to try and learn the language that this person is writing in because I got other fish to fry. And I have all kinds of friends who write what I think is somewhat inscrutable poetry. I will obviously name no names. And they're always saying, well, it's capitalism, it's commercialism, and it's this and it's that and so on. Philistinism, that they don't read poetry and so on. I, I, I never say it, but I want to say well, if you want to be read, you really ought to read, write something readable. <laughs> that would, uh, and, you know, I spoke earlier on of, uh, of my early poems being very narratively inclined uh, uh, because of that exposure to those, uh, those old pioneers. Um, I, I stopped writing straightforward story poems for the most part, but I never abandoned my interest in what I call narrative values that I mean, in the conventional sense, you know, uh, character setting, uh, dialogue, even, uh, uh, I want a reader to know where she or he is in reading one of my poems, who's talking to whom, if relevant. Uh, I want to, uh, I want to invite the, the reader, uh, who, uh, into the poem, uh, as, as best I can. I, if, you know, if I refer to a chair in a poem, I don't have to metaphorize that or cover it all up. If, you know, you can sit in that chair that, you know, metaphorically and sit in that a chair it doesn't have to mean a whole lot. Don't worry too much about the meaning. Uh, attend primarily to the language, uh, but also to whatever odd connections uh, the poet may have uh uh, developed and uh, as I say I do that because there's always to some degree there's a story behind every poem I write and even if it's not a straightforwardly uh, narrative poem there are those in- underpinnings of uh, particularly of uh, of setting and of uh, character including the character I you know I mean I I <laughs> My friend, the poet Brendan Galvin, wrote an essay called Mumblings quite a long time ago in which he described some poems which were written by an indefinable I uh, about the emotional circumstance of an undefined second person who in turn is talking to a third unidentified (laughs) person. I, I don't want to fall into that trap. I want people to know who's talking to who. Gotcha. That's awesome. That is awesome. The, um, I got to make sure because we, we're getting close to finishing up, and I got to make sure that I ask you about this. You were you were recognized as a conservation hero by Field and Stream magazine, and and um, you're up there in Maine. I, I mean, could you talk about this recognition and and just talk about uh, you know you started talking about that 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 world that you have with the, the waterfall and such, and I was just wondering if you could mention that for a minute. Well, it happened. Uh in the early 2000s that uh, almost all that land up there was owned by uh, lumber companies. And uh, most of it was, was uh, when I talk about a complicated relationship, a lot of it was owned by my alma mater, Yale, under the guise of these phantom LLCs all registered in Delaware. And uh, word got out from within the industry that they were getting ready to make a final cut as, as brutal, brutal a cut as the law would allow and then put everything up for sale because uh, once the lumber was gone it wasn't any good to them so they were going to let the property be divided up into lots and so on and so forth and uh, it wasn't I who originated this idea but it was local men largely though there are women as well uh, who are, make their livings in the summertime and in the fall as guides and uh, some, I mean, uh, most of them uh, minimally educated in a formal way, but many of them very, very bright. And uh, one of them said uh, to another, uh, you know, if this happens, that's the end of our way of life. Uh, well, the traditional use will vanish and it'll become like any other developed uh, piece of wild land. 
and uh, we all know people with education and money whom we have guided. Why don't we see if we can't put a land trust together and somehow buy this property to ensure that it'll go on? And uh, that was originally, uh, uh, we partnered with the New England Forestry Foundation, a wonderful organization whose interest is in woods products and how they can be used ecologically in the management uh, of sustainable forests. We partnered with uh, them and we had this initial meeting and uh, the chair, their director stood up and said, well, $14 million, let's go raise it. Well, I looked around, that's a town that has 70 year-round residents. It's the second poorest town, county in Maine. Wow. And they said, this guy is smoking hashish or something. Like, $14 million? <laughs> well, my brother, my younger brother and I became like, co-chairs of a, a very a great learning experience uh we became the uh, co-chairs of uh, the campaign committee to raise the money which ended up being 35 million dollars wow and we managed to do so and the proviso was it, it was uh, i mean the alternatives to uh, you know cluttered estates so-called a quarter acre estates on the beautiful lakeshore the alternative was uh uh, what's happened in a lot of the Western states where somebody would buy a huge amount of land, somebody with uh, incredible means, and then put up gates and bars and nobody could come in as private property and so on. Well, we wrote up our covenant uh, when we put it into conservation and the New England Forestry Foundation held the easement that uh, traditional use and public access would be guaranteed uh, nice. in perpetuity. Nice. So... I became involved, and then we came up with a second project, which was $21 million, and I was, again, the, the chair of that campaign, and they made me president of the land trust. Uh, <clears throat> I said, you know, I'm not a real good administrator. You know, I said, no, we'll make you a president because it'll sound better when you're out shaking people <laughs> down for money. And uh, so we added another uh uh, 21,000 acres so that we own outright our community forest is uh, uh, almost 70,000 acres. And that's a workable, uh, working, sustainable forestry operation. And then around us, uh, we've conserved almost 400,000 acres from development. It doesn't mean that it can't be, can't be uh, ruinously uh, uh, harvested as timber, but at least it's not going to be full of McMansions and what have you. So I've been involved with that for since 2001. And uh, it was at the end of that first campaign, $35 million one, that uh, that I was named that conservation hero by the, the oldest of the outdoor magazines. Uh, I didn't think I was much more heroic than any of the other people, especially the local um, people who came up with the idea in the first place. But uh, a nice little feather in my cap, I suppose. Very nice. Congrats on that. That's, and I appreciate you sharing that, that, because that, that's, uh, you're right. A lot of people who have the means buy a lot of land and then put the fences up. And it's un unfortunate because uh, that's, that's so much to experience and something that's protected then. And New England has always been famous. You know, it's, it's unlike the West in this regard, you know, I mean, uh, uh, not so much anymore, but I was an, uh, an avid upland hunter when I was younger. Uh, uh, I was particularly interested in, and developing uh, good bird dogs. Nice. I never knew whose property I was on. You know, I mean, I mean, if I was close to somebody's dwelling, I'd go in and say, is it okay? You know, I'd ask. But other than that, there's a lot of, even here in Vermont, I mean, there's a lot of open land uh, with no obvious residence close by. And so, well, that looks like a good spot. I'll go in there. I never, it never even gave me a pause. And that's just what's done around here, you know. That's changing as the dem demography changes, right. but uh, it was always uh, true when I was younger. That's that is awesome. They, uh, is that's that is something that uh, um, I think see, in this in this world today, there's there's a lot of focus on uh, whose that is and whether you mm -hmm. have access to it or not. So, <laughs> right. um, but right. but well, we have a pretty pretty good charge of land here and. Uh, we ask that people tell us who they are before they, but we don't pro prohibit anybody unless it's somebody we know to be a, a, a felon in waiting. Gotcha. <laughs> we don't deny uh, access. And the people whom we do allow on the property are are, are great 
vigilantes for us because if somebody uh, who is a slob will go out and shoot deer at night or bait them or anything like that, they'll find out and they'll let me know and we, we can let the game warden know and just kick them off as the case may be. So I'm glad to have it open to, uh, to responsible people. That's awesome. Uh, and kudos for doing all that. Uh, you know, Sid, I get, we're, we're bringing everything to a close. Uh, um, if someone wanted to find out more about you and learn about what shines and the projects you got coming up, um, where would you send them? Where, where do they need to go? Well, I have a website. It's just www.sydneylead.net. Um, it was .com, and then somebody stole the domain. I'm so naive. I remain naive about the cyber world, so I had to change it to net. Uh, and then I also have a, uh, a, you know, about the Substack uh, the institution, which is a kind of online newsletter. Uh, anyway, uh, and uh, you can subscribe to mine for free. Just go to Substack.com and Google my name and I'll come up. And every two to three weeks, I'll put out a sample of whatever I'm working on at the moment. Um and uh, so that's another that I mean, I have a sampler page on my website as well, but it's uh, I don't change that as often as I do the other. Nice. Well, I'll put that information in the show notes. So it's easy for people to find and take a look at it. And uh, um, we got uh, I got a question that I like to ask my um, guests. And uh, but but I was wondering before you go, if you could share a little bit about that hockey thing, because I, I. Well, I, I just was a very enthusiastic about hockey. I was raised in Pennsylvania and it was not a big, you know, uh, it was not nearly as, uh, all, all athletics in my view have become, well, what is the word I want? have become so organized. I mean, the idea of old pickup baseball and basketball games, that kind of thing, ice hockey on, on a pond somewhere. Now, no, you have to join a league. I have a 13-year-old grandson who, believe it or not, is being scouted by colleges already because he's such a good soccer player. Wow. And uh, I don't say anything particularly prescriptive, but I say, you yeah, remember the main point here is to have fun. And I think that sinks in with him. He can have fun and still be incredible. <laughs> yes. But uh, so I, I joined a club hockey team, and I was pretty good. Uh, I was the best player on the team. The best player on the team is dead now, but he, you know, he went on to, uh, he never made the NHL, but he did, we did play in the uh, AHL the next step down. Um, and then when I got to college, I just, uh, I played uh, there. Um, again, there were better, there were more than one player better than I on my freshman team. We went undefeated that year, uh, as I recall. And then I suited up for the next year, and the booth had taken over. Really, I I I, I devoted what spare time I had to getting drunk. I'm sorry to say, but that's I. So I put that aside. I, in all, you know, clear headedness. I looked. There was there wasn't a there was a better chance of my becoming pope than it was of becoming an NHL player. Uh, but you know, when you're young, you have your have your dreams but yes. i did love the game a lot oddly enough i don't even watch it on tv anymore if i watch sports on tv it's uh basketball or baseball i have no i played football and i played hockey and i was pretty good at both of those but i have no particular interest in them as, <laughs> as pro sports uh i i look i look elsewhere nice well i appreciate you sharing the uh um said this has been awesome let's last question i have for you is this um you know a big part of my audience are teachers of uh, or, and educators of different sorts. Um, do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? And if so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to tell that person, thank you? And, uh, uh, the most influential teacher I ever had was my middle school and high school French teacher. Uh, he was the best teacher at any level I've ever encountered, even at really fancy institutions. He was uh, an extraordinarily strict disciplinarian. But I remember walking into the first class in seventh grade and he said, I want you to listen very carefully because this is the last English you'll ever hear in this room. And uh, he and uh, and I did something wrong and then back in the old days. He was a big old strapping guy with a football coach, too. And he smacked me over the back of my head and threw my notebook out the window and said, now go down and pick it up in French, mind you. Uh, and so, of course, uh, I was obliged to hate this man. <laughs> Deep. 
And after about six weeks, I said, you know, I'm I'm starting to I'm starting to kind of catch the hang of this French thing. I'm pretty good with languages. Uh, that's just a, some people are, some people aren't. And uh, and then I looked at him and I said, you know, I I want to be one of those someday. I want to be a teacher uh, like that. Uh, I subs we subsequently became very good friends, and I saw how incredibly hard he worked uh, 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 to be a good teacher. I remember particularly one episode where he was trying to teach us the word incendie, which means fire, you know, uh, uh, in French. And uh, we couldn't get it. We couldn't get it. And he finally pulled out his lighter and set the wastebasket on fire. He said, That's how hard he worked to be a purist. And nice. uh, boy, I, I came out of that school and I went to France. I got a little fellowship from the Alliance Francaise and, People thought they didn't think I was French, but they thought maybe I was Belgian or Canadian or something like that. I, nice. I, I mean, that's faded to some degree because I don't use it as much as I used to. But uh, I mean, we live very close to Quebec, so I, I get a chance every so often to go up there and uh, trot it out again. That's awesome. That's that's really cool. Uh, and, and I made sure he knew how important he had been. Nice. You know, I would. Even uh, after he had a stroke and was quite incapacitated, not mentally, but otherwise, because he couldn't speak very well. I couldn't call him on the phone, but I, I would write him an annual letter and tell him, you know, uh, you really changed my life. And I'll, I'll never, uh, I can get a little dewy thinking about it. I'll never cease being grateful to you for that. That's incredible. That's awesome. I, I said, thank you so much for sharing your work, what shines, writing poetry, reading poetry, I mean, and, all, and all kinds of neat um, aspects of your life. I appreciate it. Uh, wishing you the best in all you do. Well, that, this has really been a fun conversation for me. I hope your listeners may enjoy it as well. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.